Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. Brooke Gladstone is out this week. I'm Bob Garfield. Recently, there has been a record number of migrant families crossing the southern border, and U.S. authorities say they cannot cope. Illegal immigration is simply spiraling out of control and threatening public safety and national security. We face a crisis, a real, serious, and sustained crisis at our borders. That was Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen testifying Wednesday before the House Homeland Security Committee. She paid lip service to the inescapable humanitarian implications, but focused on the president's nightmare vision of pillaging hordes. Some of the spin was mind-boggling, especially her defense of the outdoor concrete slab chain-linked fence pens where children are held once separated from their parents. Here was Nielsen's answer to committee chairman Benny Thompson, who wanted an explanation for incarceration of children in cages. Sir, they're not cages. What are they? Areas of the border facility that are carved out for the safety and protection of those who remain there while they're being processed. As the Senate prepared for a vote on repudiating Trump's declaration of national emergency to build his promised beautiful, beautiful wall, contortionist rhetoric was the least of the week's border-related scandals. On Thursday, we learned that Nielsen's Customs and Border Protection Agency worked with Mexican authorities in detaining journalists at border entries and interrogating them about their Mexican travels. The watch list, leaked to San Diego's NBC7 News Department, targeted more than 50 people, most of whom are immigration activists, but also including 10 journalists and a U.S. lawyer. U.S. journalists and attorneys felt they were being sometimes targeted by their own government. And now leaked documents from a government source show their fears were warranted. Mari Payton of NBC7 in San Diego broke the story. Mari, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Bob. Nice story. Who's in the database? There's 59 people total. There's journalists. There are attorneys. Actually, we just found out this morning that there is a member of a church, a pastor. Um, There's also immigrant rights activists and advocates. Some of whom are identified as uh, instigators. Right. So its official name was the San Diego Sector Foreign Operations Branch, suspected organizers, coordinators, instigators, and media. And they have what in common? Well, according to the people that we spoke to, they all covered the border, worked at the border. At some point in November, December 2018, when the migrant caravan from Honduras was making its way toward the Tijuana-San Diego border. Now, Customs and Border Protection late yesterday came out with a statement to NBC News that said all of the people in this database had witnessed violence erupting around the border in November. But the people we spoke to, not all of them were there at that time. So we're still trying to find out exactly if there was a single event that ties them all together. But as far as we know, they were all just working around the border at that time. Ten people on the list are journalists. Right. And a lot of those are freelancers. Because now they're listed in this database, some of them are being denied entry into Mexico to do this sort of work. So the government doesn't deny this watch list or the detentions of journalists at the border. 
it says that they are related to a November 25th incident when asylum seekers in San Isidro at the border facility rushed the border. Sunday afternoon, about 100 Mexican nationals try to legally enter the U.S. west of the San Ysidro border crossing. But within the crowd, a few bad apples hit Border Patrol agents with rocks and water bottles in the arms, legs, and head. I want to read you an excerpt from the Customs and Border Protection statement on this. Quote, It is protocol following these incidents to collect evidence that might be needed for future legal actions and to determine if the event was orchestrated. Can you tell me what part of that double talk would possibly involve journalists and at least one lawyer who is on this list to be hauled in for another one of these secondary screenings? That word orchestrated. None of these journalists were there to entice the migrants. They were there to document what was happening, to witness history, to take photos, if you will, to talk to people. And you bring up a good point about those secondary screenings. Customs and Border Protection have been doing that, but all of these people say in the months following that caravan movement in December, they were constantly called in for those secondary screenings again and again and again and asked some interesting questions. We talked to one woman who we named in the piece. She's a freelance journalist there, and they asked her if she rented or she owned her home in San Diego. She was puzzled by that, of course. I mean, why would that matter in terms of what she was doing at the border? And we found at least one dossier related to one of these people in the database that was so detailed, in fact, it had not only her passport picture or social media accounts, but information about her own mother, what kind of car she was driving, the license plate number. So it's the amount of detail, too, that the government is tracking these people that is alarming. It's worth noting that every time these people attempt to cross the border for the rest of their lives, including to do their jobs, they are likely to be hauled in for another one of these secondary screenings. Right. And all of the people that we spoke to say what they were concerned about was the level that some of these people were taking it to in terms of asking to see their photographs, looking through reporter notebooks, things that they didn't feel comfortable with. They were being separated from some of their gear and some of their cameras, which are obviously very expensive, but also contain their work. There's the question of sources. People don't want to give up their sources. And obviously some of that could be written in some of these notebooks. Journalists suspected this was going on before you ever broke your story. There had been whispers about what seemed to be a coordinated targeting of journalists at the border. There was an intercept piece that raised the question of what was going on. Your piece and the documents you received were the smoking gun. All of these people had this suspicion that they were sort of being tracked or there was an alert on their name. But until this database and until our story aired, most of these people had no idea it existed and were surprised and shocked to learn that they were on it and were questioning why. Why me? This is the first time there's been real evidence. It came to us from inside Homeland Security. We then verified it, and when we went to Customs and Border Protection to ask them about it, they didn't deny that it existed. And what was interesting about this is this database can be accessed by a lot of different federal agencies. We're talking about Customs and Border Protection, but also ICE, Homeland Security, the San Diego sector of the FBI. Now, the source that we spoke to, he was very alarmed, obviously, if he gave us this information. The source wanted to make sure that we knew that they 
and this is the quote, we are a criminal investigation agency. We're not an intelligence agency and said that it's actually an abuse of the border search authority to be keeping a database like this. There is a term for what you've described and it is domestic spying. What's the level of outrage you've heard from the politicians you've spoken to while reporting this story? Well, I mean, besides the politicians, I mean, the public outrage has been huge. It is important to note, though, not everyone is upset, and some people are saying that if there are people there during the migrant caravan, that the government has every right to track them. We have yet to get an official word from any of our elected officials I know Governor Gavin Newsom is in town of California today, and we are trying to get a reaction from him. Obviously, we've also reached out to Senator Dianne Feinstein, Kamala Harris. It will be interesting to see what the response is from our elected officials. And then more importantly, will anything be done? Do the people you speak to believe that this is intimidation, that it's meant to have a chilling effect on reporting south of the border? Oh, absolutely. I think some feel like it's working as well. They are being intimidated. For a lot of these people, I think it is extremely difficult. They want more answers, basically. All right. Mari, thank you very much. Thank you. Mari Payton is an investigative anchor and reporter with the NBC7 investigative team in San Diego. Kitra Kahana is a freelance photojournalist who's worked for the New York Times, National Geographic, the CBC, NBC, and other outlets. She's been covering the migration, and she's one of the journalists on the list. On January 17th, on her way to Tapachula, Mexico, to cover a nascent caravan, she was flagged for secondary screening by U.S. Customs. And then, when she arrived in Mexico City, officials pulled her aside again. I wasn't allowed to leave. They took away my phone. I wasn't allowed to call anyone. I couldn't call my embassy. They had me fill out questions. And after about five hours, they told me that I was being denied entry into Mexico. I was held for about 13 hours. And then I was escorted back onto a plane, handed my passport and my phone, and I was taken back to Detroit. And the Mexican authorities said, hey, don't look at us. This came from the Americans. There was an official that through my broken Spanish, his broken English, who had said that I was on some kind of Interpol list and that the Americans had put me on it. But I'm not sure whether he knew or whether he was just saying something. One of the problems with border flags is that they just, they never go away. Have you traveled overseas since that day? And if so, have you been stopped, pulled aside again? Well, I I attempted to cross into Mexico to cover the caravan a second time. I flew from Detroit down to Guatemala City. I didn't have any issues going into Guatemala. Then tried to cross into Mexico through the Guatemala-Mexican border, and basically the same thing happened, and I was denied entry again. You're in Honduras as we speak. Do you have plans to try to go into Mexico in the near future? I'm working on a story about a woman who died in U.S. detention. She traveled through Mexico. So while reporting on the story, I hope to be able to return to Mexico to some of the places that she traveled to. 
I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to do that. You're a freelance journalist. You go from story to story, assignment to assignment, and your ability to get to those assignments determines whether you make a living. Ultimately, it's the public that loses when journalists aren't able to do their work and bring clarity to these kinds of issues. In the current state of the media, so much of the work that is brought forward is brought to publications by freelancers. Often what this means is that we are self-funding and then hoping that a publication will pick up the work that we do or they'll put us on assignment while we're there. And so not knowing whether you can freely travel to a location causes a lot of uncertainty. And a lot of other journalists have reached out to me since all of this came out and they're questioning whether they want to put their own money forward as freelancers to go to the border to risk covering migration or border issues. All of this is creating a climate of fear. You mad? Am I mad? I mean, I'm mad. I would say I'm confused. I don't understand why this is happening to myself or my colleagues. I think it's a horrible precedent. It's been a little confusing to try to figure out what the pattern is. There's a cohort of photographers who were working every day right by the wall. And many of us, not all of us, are on the list. You know, I'm grateful to whoever it was that leaked this because for the last month and a half now, we've been in this kind of limbo, not sure why this was happening. Reporters were reaching out to CBP and they were denying that they had placed any alert on our passports. The Mexican government was being similarly vague and it just seems like there's a lot more clarity now. Customs and Border Protection claims that this watch list is part of an investigation into the incident November 25th when some asylum seekers rushed the border. They want to talk to witnesses. Were you even there that day? No. I've also been in touch with a lot of the other journalists who are on this list, and many of them weren't there either that day. So I don't think that that makes sense as an answer. I'm not sure what they're referring to there. Keitra, thank you very much. Thank you for talking to me. Keitra Kahana is a freelance photojournalist with MAPS Photo Agency. Coming up, who gets to curate a president's museum? Surely not the president. This is on the media. So here's something I bet every on the media listener can agree on. The narrative matters. The stories we tell ourselves about our past absolutely shape how we think about our future. And that's the focus of our new season of the United States of Anxiety, a podcast from WNYC Studios. I'm Kai Wright. Join me as I investigate the unfinished business of American history and learn how it shapes everything about the 2020 election. Get the United States of Anxiety on Apple Podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. In a 1938 cartoon published by the Chicago Tribune, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt is Santa Claus, stuffing a gift into his own stocking. That gift, 
was his presidential library, the first of its kind to be run by the newly established National Archives. Every president since has given himself the very same present. But at least until now, these libraries have also been gifts to historians, one-stop shopping for the documentation of 13 presidencies curated by the civil servants at the National Archive. Number 14, however, turns out to be very different. Last month, we learned from the New York Times that the Obama Foundation, after building the Obama Presidential Center, will itself handle and curate the Obama papers and the museum exhibits. Tim Naftali is a professor of history and public service at New York University and former director of the Nixon Presidential Library and Museum. To Naftali, the arrangement is a conflict of interest that bodes poorly for independent history. He would know at the Nixon Library he had to undo the politicization that came with bifurcated responsibility over the raw material. Until Richard Nixon, our presidents owned their papers. Well, Richard Nixon, after he resigned, had a moving van pull up to the White House to take his papers and his tapes to California. President Ford heard about this and asked his Justice Department, who owns these things? And the head of the Office of Legal Counsel was somebody known as Antonin Scalia. And Antonin Scalia said, the president owns them. President Ford, he didn't want to be involved in obstruction of justice. He didn't want people to say, wait a moment, you allowed Nixon to destroy papers that might be relevant in future trials. So Nixon had to sign away control temporarily of his papers. Now, when Congress saw the deal, Congress didn't like it. So they passed a law called the President's Recordings and Materials Preservation Act. They just went in and took everything in people's desks because of the fear that some trials would not be fair trials because necessary documents would have been destroyed or withheld. Now, the papers are in Washington. The Nixon Museum was in Southern California. One can imagine what such a thing would look like curated by his own peeps. Well, you know exactly what such a thing would look like. So Nixon, who had been planning a presidential library before his presidency unraveled, still wanted a library. So his family, he actually went to his richest friends, and the family builds a library with a museum. It walks and talks like other libraries, except it has no presidential materials. It can't because they are still in Washington, including the famous tapes. The president and the first lady decide they want to be buried there, as has become the custom for all modern presidents. So in many ways, it's just like a library, but it's not part of the National Archives system, and it doesn't have to follow any of the norms that have been established for National Archives-run presidential libraries. In the early 2000s, the family decided they didn't want to run this library anymore. They lobbied Congress to change that law that governed Nixon's materials so that the materials could be sent to California and the National Archives would run the building and therefore pay for a large percentage of its upkeep. National Archives said, okay, we'll do this. And then they needed a director who would run the first Nixon presidential library. That was me. What did you find there? Exactly what you would expect. It was a very defensive set of exhibits characterized by incomplete information. The Watergate exhibit, for example, blamed 
the entire investigation on the Democrats as an attempt by them to reverse the outcome of the 1972 election. One never hears that anymore. (laughs) Right. Well, it was exactly the spinning that one would expect of a group of people who desperately wanted to change the verdict of history. All right. But now there was a new sheriff in town. And not to put too fine a point on it, your job was to revise the revisionism. The challenge was to prove that a presidential library could provide an unsparing look at a failed presidency. I am concerned that we aren't talking to each other as a country, that we are reaching a point where we are losing a common baseline effect. One of the beauties of having the federal government oversee national historical places is that traditionally people would believe that the facts they are getting are real. You're not supposed to engage in interpretation or wild interpretation. You give them the data, you you craft the chronology, but by and large, the grand theories, you leave to them. People still care what the National Weather Service says. People still care about what the National Institute of Health says. And they care about what our government scientists say about climate change. Now, there are people who are trying to undermine the respect that people have for that. But I think that's a a fight worth having. And I worry that without knowing it, President Obama, who has opted for his museum to be private, I'm not saying it's going to look and feel like the private Nixon library that I was hired to dismantle, but that his museum is going to be private denies his own administration, the source of authoritative information for public history that it should have. I mean, when I heard about this plan, I was surprised because I thought that a good president would take a risk with the National Archives. He had a scandal-free administration. We can disagree on what he achieved, perhaps, and how he went about things. But this is an administration where letting the chips fall where they may was a pretty darn good proposition and could really further the project of encouraging public history by public institutions, institutions we all pay for and therefore we all have a stake in. Now, we have no evidence that he you know, plans for some sort of hagiography. It doesn't require a whole lot of imagination to look to uh, a Trump presidential library curated by, oh, I don't know, Ivanka. The deep state exhibit would just be fantastic. Maybe Obama's library will be intellectually honest, but the point here is that it's a slippery slope. The Obama Foundation has put together an absolutely wonderful team to do the museum. But my experience is that there is a fundamental tension between the mission of a nonpartisan public institution and a private presidential legacy project. Private presidential foundations have pressures on them to always emphasize the positive part of the legacy. Because legacy could be negative as well as positive. In history, they say, belongs to the winners. We could have a whole show about the effect of, yes, of who writes the history. You know, if you're like Henry Kissinger or Winston Churchill and you end up writing the first draft of your years in power, you really do shape the narrative later on. But anyway, to get back to this, so this is not a question about whether Barack Obama and his foundation are dependable stewards of history. But can we not provide the American people as one of the products of federal government with spaces to learn about political history that are nonpartisan and that they can trust? I know that the story of other 
presidential libraries is a mixed bag. There are some libraries that have gone to great lengths in the last 15 years to present the negative legacy, if you will. Uh, The Roosevelt Library talks about the Japanese internment. It didn't before. It added a section on the Holocaust and what the U.S. government was not doing for Jewish refugees. The Truman Library, I think, was the first to start to experiment by having open dialogue about the dropping of the bombs on Japan and and having students come in and, and look at the options so that it was understood that one of the options could be that the president made a mistake. The Johnson Library in recent years had started to open a debate about Vietnam. It could go further, but it started a very good process. The Obama president would stop that and mean that That effort doesn't have to continue, and the private museums will be funded by the presidents, then staffed by the presidents, and then their children and grandchildren can forevermore ensure that they only talk about the good things. In some ways, this story reflects what we saw during the Obama administration itself, where the president had certain questions of overreach on executive authority, on surveillance and intelligence and drone strikes. And a common refrain was, well, you know, this is us. Trust us. Transparency helps us every day, all the time, even if it's about a matter you don't care about, because it puts the government on notice that it could get caught. I think that if a president understands that his legacy could be undermined in the future, that could be something that restrains them now. It's maybe a naive hope, but I remember when I was putting together footnotes for the Watergate exhibit, I thought to myself, for any future investigation of a presidency that engages in abuse of power, this is the playbook. The techniques that presidents who abuse power try to use were used by Richard Nixon, and there's all the evidence of them. So if you want to be ahead of the curve in this era, all you need to do is look at the materials that we put online about what Nixon tried to do. In many cases, he was stopped by good government Republicans who are really heroes, I think, in this story. Now, isn't it great that the federal government put this online? And isn't it great that, to some extent, that history can restrain bad behavior? Now, Obviously, it hasn't eliminated bad behavior. Look what we're living through now. But the fact that people will figure out your misdeeds, I do believe, is very healthy in society. And so it's an argument for not just day-to-day transparency, which is important, but historical transparency. Tim, thank you. Thank you, Bob. Tim Naftali is a professor of history and public service at New York University. Louise Bernard is the director of the museum at the Obama Presidential Center. Louise, welcome to OTM. Thank you for having me. We've just heard from a historian with several worries, but I want to begin with the central one, the notion that those associated with the subject of history shouldn't be the arbiters of that history. Fair concern? I'm an academic by training, and so I do understand that particular scholarly concern. I think that all museums, regardless of whether they're run by so-called private foundations or institutions or are run by the federal government, do have a curatorial point of view. There is a very particular kind of story that they're trying to tell, This is particularly central to presidential museums, the goal of which is to probe the legacy of a given president and to really think carefully about the highs and lows of that particular administration. We take public history 
and our educational responsibilities very seriously. We want to think about the Obama presidency in all of its complexity. That includes the highs and the lows, the challenges of this particular story. The Obama Foundation is a nonprofit, 5013C. It's a nonpartisan foundation. We are subject to federal law, to our agreements with the city of Chicago. And as with other museums, we might think about the 9-11 Memorial Museum in New York. Even if run by a private foundation, that story is provided in the public trust. Now, you mentioned curatorial point of view, but in this case, we were talking about a presidency, about documents that belong to the government of the United States. And the question is whether the people who are doing the storytelling are going to be independent brokers of the history, that they're beholden not to the foundation, but to the public. And, you know, he who pays the piper calls the tune. Can we expect, for example that there will be a museum exhibit on drone strikes? Can we expect one about the prosecution of journalists or of the Syria red line that wasn't a red line? And not to put too fine a point on it, can the foundation be trusted to be honest brokers? Yes, we work very closely with the National Archives and Records Administration, and so we follow their standards. But we also engage with a group of historians and museum experts. We have intentionally built a very careful process of review and approval to really engage people in terms of feedback and critique. In terms of your questions about very specific stories, we're still in the process of developing the content. Yes, there has to be a way of telling all sides of a very complex topic in a fair manner, in a judicial manner. It's still very recent history. There's still much to be understood about the Obama administration and its legacy. And so we'll want to be in ongoing dialogue with historians and other scholars, other researchers around the story that we're telling. I want to ask you about precedent setting. Maybe... The Obama Library, as you constructed, is going to play it straight historically. But, you know, what about the Trump presidential library? With this precedent established, maybe we can trust you, but who's to say we can trust them? It's difficult for me to speak to kind of hypotheticals. We are working very closely and very collaboratively with the National Archives and Records Administration, with NARA, with the federal government, to understand an evolving model while, well, overall levels of trust in the federal government have been diminishing and lately plummeting, there are certain things that the public still does trust about the government, still wishes for the government to be the arbiter of. NASA, it trusts the National Weather Service, it trusts the National Archives as an independent broker of the documentary history of the republic. Does the Obama Library's organization defy or even erode that trust? For other presidential libraries or the presidential centers, there has long been a very thoughtful relationship between the private foundations and NARA. So we're continuing that work, at the same time placing a particular emphasis on digitization because that is the way forward. Am I being too reductive to ask you if you're just saying no? Really, just just trust us. 
It's more than that. It's saying that we are accountable to the deep scholarly work of historiography. Of course, we may be judged in various ways. Any scholar who produces a book is open to critique in terms of a particular thesis or approach. The storytelling at the heart of a museum is also one that will engage a range of interlocutors. And we also think about the programming work, the educational work that will bring the museum to life. That is also a point in which people can weigh in, can provide their own reflections and commentary. So it's an ongoing dialogue. And I think dialogue is also at the heart of scholarship. It is a living thing. And the museum is a living thing. It's a living entity. There will be space for people to share their points of view accordingly. You know, the pushback that we have received, the questions that have been asked, will only place us in a kind of a better position down the line. This is the engagement that needs to take place. I'm going to suspend the interrogation and ask you, as someone who, is, who gets to build a library from scratch, uh, what cool stuff you may have in mind. We have a wonderful opportunity to reflect back on the power and possibility of that watershed campaign moment in 2007, 2008. So you can imagine all of the amazing ephemera that many people have in their attics, in their garages, whether it was a, a handmade banner or a T-shirt or a, a button. And then we also think about key items such as an artifact like one of President Obama's signing pens. There'll be a huge amount of interest around the First Lady's dresses, not only because they were beautiful objects, but also because of the stories that they tell. She was really attuned to the idea of uplifting designers of color, young people, and also connecting the dresses that she wore, the sartorial diplomacy, to education. So there's a range of material Dude, sartorial diplomacy. Ready? The beige suit. <laughs> we will be happy to tell a story about the beige suit, I'm sure. Louise, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bob. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Louise Bernard is the director of the museum at the forthcoming Obama Presidential Center. Coming up, the history of segregation... Trigger warning, it is grotesque. This is On The Media. On The Media is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your short list of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash On The Media. That's Indeed.com slash On The Media. This is On the Media. I'm Bob Garfield. History may indeed be written by the victors, but the victors don't necessarily script the future. After the Civil War, the triumphant North imposed Reconstruction, essentially an occupation government in the South. The result was an ugly backlash in Southern states, including the incremental imposition of Jim Crow laws on the very black Americans supposedly emancipated in the midst of war. 19th century civil rights activists battled Jim Crow eventually to the Supreme Court. That case was Plessy versus Ferguson, and in 1896, the court's decision marched to the nation backwards. Despite three post-war amendments granting blacks equal rights, racial segregation was permitted on a separate but equal basis. 
With one lonely descent, Plessy became the law of the land for six decades until effectively reversed in 1954's Brown v. Board of Education. Steve Luxenberg is an associate editor at The Washington Post and author of Separate, the story of Plessy v. Ferguson and America's journey from slavery to segregation. Steve, welcome to OTM. Hey, thanks, Bob. Glad to be here. The term separate but equal never actually appeared in the decision, but the case and your book hinge on that idea because in Louisiana, as would be the case throughout the South as Jim Crow evolved, railroads were permitted to divide the races in separate cars. And this is the reaction in part to Reconstruction and the three Reconstruction Amendments that expand equal rights, provide citizenship for blacks, ensure equal protection, voting rights. There's a resistance to that among whites in the South who have lost political power, lost economic power. Separate but equal does not appear in the decision, as you pointed out. It does appear in the dissent, but it becomes the phrase that the Supreme Court uses in 1954 in the Brown decision, and that's how we regard the shorthand today. Now, to the particulars of the case, the plaintiff, Homer Plessy, wasn't some random victim of segregation. Like Rosa Parks nearly a century later, he was handpicked for the role and the circumstances were engineered for an arrest. Well, they were trying to create the Plessy team down in New Orleans, which is where the case comes from. It is an unusual city. Every shade of the spectrum under the sun is there. And the group that brings it is a group of mixed-race, French-speaking, often Creoles, that means native-born, frustrated after more than a century of trying to get their rights. Most of them have never been enslaved. Their parents weren't enslaved. Their grandparents weren't enslaved. And they feel that their best argument is to throw some confusion at the court, in part. Plessy is fair-skinned enough to pass for white or to cause that confusion, and so they want to be able to argue that the law is unenforceable. It doesn't define white. It doesn't define mixed race. And so therefore, how can you possibly enforce this law when many people riding the trains in Louisiana are of indeterminate race? The case was the culmination of decades of activism, legislation. The first of those cases is in 1841 in Massachusetts when a slightly built black New York abolitionist named David Ruggles decides to bring an assault charge against the conductor who tries to separate him on a Massachusetts railroad. And he loses, but he establishes a very important principle, which is that we can go into court to pursue our grievances. 1892, they know they're probably going to lose, and yet this is a group of fighters, and they're not going to sit by and take it without bringing in their case. Well, there's no need to withhold the ending of this story. The decision was catastrophic for blacks and for American society as a whole, an utter repudiation of civil rights and an assault on the basic humanity of African Americans. And opening the door to other statutes, other states enacting separation laws to separate waiting rooms, separate bathrooms, separate water fountains. All of this was anticipated by the only dissenter in the case, John Marshall Harlan of Kentucky, a Southerner from a slaveholding family. And he says this is what's going to happen. He doesn't predict those specific conditions, but he does talk about separate juries or separate courthouses. And he says this day will one day be regarded as shameful as Dred Scott. That's the ruling before the Civil War that blacks, free or not, could not be citizens. Now, this was the 19th century. 
Newspapers were wholly aligned and allied with political parties, the Whigs, the Know-Nothings, the Democrats, the Republicans. And by the way, the Democrats and the Republicans are kind of flip-flop from how we know them today. The legality of slavery, the path to war, the terms of Reconstruction, they were all litigated by a highly partisan press, no? Absolutely. That's why you have newspapers remaining today that are called the Springfield Republican or the Arkansas Democrat. This is where they began as alliances with political parties. And nobody thought that was very unusual. Uh, Reporting in the early part of the century and through probably 1880 or 90 was almost non-existent. It was frustrating for me as a researcher to be reading these newspaper accounts. And they have a lot of opinions and hot air, but they don't have a lot of facts a pre-fact society. <laughs> it wasn't fake news. It was pre-news. Facts or no facts, it is shocking how vituperative, how nakedly racist the democratic press was, particularly in the South. Well, white superiority as opposed to white supremacy, which is also a part of this century, is rampant. And they reflected that in their newspaper articles, in their letters, in their conversation. White supremacy does come out of the loss of economic and political power after the Civil War, which gives rise to the fear and anger that creates the Ku Klux Klan in 1867 in Tennessee, and then it spreads to the other southern states. And violence underpins this era from the 1870s all the way through the mid-20th century where lynching becomes a way to settle issues that the whites feel that they've lost, the political power and the economic power. And the press reflects that. To read the book, because it focuses on uh, contemporaneous coverage, you would think that race was like the number one trending story for 60 years. But after all of this foment, you know, to say the very least, by the time the ruling came in on Plessy, The press was kind of AWOL. The coverage of the decision that would have such brutal ramifications for the society was barely even mentioned. Was it just race fatigue? Well, they're talking about the white press, remember. You used the term mainstream before. The white press saw this as an expected decision. When Turgeet, the lawyer for Plessy, showed up from western New York in Washington to give the oral argument, the Washington Post, my newspaper, uh, covered it with a column called Capital Chat, in which they said that Turgeet, who had written a novel called A Fool's Errand about Reconstruction South, he was on another fool's errand by trying to litigate this case that everybody knew was going to end with the Supreme Court ruling in favor of separation. They were right. So in terms of the way the press operates, What's the news here? Well, there's not a lot of news, so we're not going to give it great attention. The, the, the black press, on the other hand, I mean, the Richmond Planet says that after this ruling, evil days are indeed upon us. Albion Tourget, a lawyer and, and judge and novelist and newspaper columnist, was one of the heroes of your story. Another was the author of the sole dissenting opinion on Plessy, Justice John Marshall Harlan, known as the great dissenter. Uh, Here's one line from his dissent. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. Marshall was from Kentucky, 
a former slave owner, a former opponent of the Reconstruction laws that he at the time deemed too punitive to the South, but obviously transformed how? Well, it's a remarkable transformation, a very hopeful one, because it shows that somebody can hold despicable views and then abandon them. And he does so forthrightly. I don't have any doubt about the genuineness of his transformation. He was a pro-slavery candidate for Congress at the age of 25 in 1859. He comes from a slaveholding family, but he does raise a union regiment in 1861 because he believes that the union needs to be preserved both north and south. But he states that he's not going to fight a war against slavery. By the 1868 period, he has changed his mind, and partly it's politically driven. He has no home. He can't believe that he, he should belong to the Democratic Party, which is filled with ex-angry Confederates who have lost the war and are trying to accomplish by the ballot box what they couldn't accomplish by the war. And so he joins the Republican Party, that anti-slavery party, and he turns his eyes toward Washington because as a man who wants to make his mark in the world, an ambitious man, it's the only way that he can see that he's going to have a position that's going to give him some influence. And he fortunately is nominated to the court in 1877. But Steve, I want to take note of that phrase in his dissent, equal before the law. Neither Harlan nor any of the advocates, black or white, who devoted their lives to equal rights are ever heard in your book espousing what was called social equality, the ideas that blacks and whites would ever mingle. Well, even Harlan in his dissent says that the white race is superior to the black race and will be for all time as long as it continues to respect the idea that everyone is equal before the law. That's an odd way to, to go after equality, I think, but it reflects the, the attitudes of the time. And Terget, in his arguments, he has this quite inventive argument, which is that your race is your property, and if you could pass for white, and white is a better economic position than to be black, how can you be prevented from trying to exploit that reputation and property and be denied it without due process? Now, if you think about that, it's a terrible argument because it means if they win that there could be a car, a railroad car with white and mixed-race passengers, but still a separate car for those people who can't pass for white. So I tried to wrestle with this. Why would Turgeon make that argument? And the answer, I think, is pretty obvious. He wants to win, and he sees these Supreme Court justices as men of privilege and class who regard property rights as paramount. And so he's given them a property right argument. I mentioned that the press as an institution operated quite differently in the 1850s than it does today. And a, a lot of the advocacy was basic crusading. It was constant coverage, beating the same drum over and over and over, sometimes for decades. As a modern journalist, did that make you feel at all queasy? Or did you kind of long for the days when a news organization would put all of its reputation behind an ideal? I think I saw it just in its own context as being different. I mean, you have a newspaper in Massachusetts, The Liberator, which is the arm of the abolition movement of the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society. Every week, it's hammering on the issues that matter to that organization. It's a storehouse of information about the times. It's not objective reporting. But I can handle that. 
I wouldn't want to necessarily work in that environment, but if I were living in the 1830s and 40s, maybe I would have. Who knows? What do the media tend to miss now when we talk about Plessy v. Ferguson? They often say that the Supreme Court has created the doctrine of separate but equal and made it the law of the land. Well, I would argue that it didn't create the doctrine. It's been afoot in the country for 60 years. Supreme Court is endorsing it. But more importantly, what we do when we say the Supreme Court created is we're kind of giving the rest of the country a pass. This is the shame of the North, the shame of the South, the shame of all of us. It's not proper to lay it only at the feet of the Supreme Court. Steve, thank you very much. Well, thanks, Bob. Steve Luxenberg is an associate editor at The Washington Post, where, in the interest of full disclosure, he, for some number of years, uh, edited my pieces. This little song that I'm singing about, people you all know is true. If you black and got a word for living now, this is what they will say to you. They say, if you's white, she's all right. If you's brown, stick around. But if you's black, oh brother, get back, get back, get back. I opened three victories with my plowing hole. Now I want you to tell me, brother, what you gonna do about the old Jim Crow? Now, if you's white, she's all right. If you's brown, stick around. But if you's black, oh, brother, get back, get back, get back. That's it for this week's show. On the Media is produced by Alana Casanova-Burgess, Michael Lowinger, Leia Fetter, John Hanrahan, and Asta Chaturvedi. We had more help from Zandra Ellen, and our show was edited by Brooke. Our executive producer is Katya Rogers. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineers this week were Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. Brooke will be back, you know, one of these days. I'm Bob Garfield. On the Media is supported by the Ford Foundation, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, and the listeners of WNYC Radio. 